Hey, this is Jordan Harbinger, and you're listening to Awakened Nation with Brad Zalis. A huge shift is taking place on planet Earth. People seem to be waking up. Tired of the way things used to be, they are creating something brand new and changing the world we live in. My name is Brad Zalas, and I get to sit down with the next generation of idea makers, the disruptors, and the game changers. Everyday people, just like you and me, from all over, who are doing amazing things. Welcome to Awakened Nation. Hey, everybody. I got a great guest today, as always. Uh, Jordan, you sitting there in the green room. How you doing, buddy? I am sitting here in whatever, and well, it's my own room, but I'm good. I'm good <laughs> having me on. Yeah, excellent. I'm going to read your uh, bio here. Uh, Jordan Harbinger is a Wall Street lawyer turned interview talk show host and a communications and social dynamics expert. He has hosted a top 50 iTunes podcast for over 12 years and receives over 6 million downloads per month, making the Jordan Harbinger Show one of the most popular podcasts in the world. On the Jordan Harbinger Show, he de deconstructs the playbooks of the most successful people on earth and shares their strategies perspectives and practical insights with the rest of us jordan welcome to the show man thanks for having me on i appreciate it i was looking forward to this and as you can tell i've got a, a gremlin in my nasal cavity but i was like i don't want to cancel i want to keep i want to do it thanks, and if brother. i have to blow my nose in the middle of it that's <laughs> your problem because <laughs> you're a pro baby that's right that's right uh, the last time we talked, I was blown away by this, but you had hit your 10-year milestone. So people were talking about podcasting and it's the hot new thing. You were doing this for over a decade before podcasting and radio shows and all this uh, really became like the hot new way to communicate. Yeah, it's funny to think about that now because it... There's two ways to look at this. Yeah, I'm such an early adopter. Or what a bunch of foresight I really had. And then there's the whole, so wait, you had a 10-year advantage on everyone, and what, what did you do with it, you knucklehead? So that's kind of where we're at. I'm in between those two things, depending on which side of the bed I wake up on. But yeah, we're in my 13th year of doing the Jordan Harbinger show or whatever you want to call it in some fashion or another. So I was... Let's see. Yeah, it come in January. It'll be 13 years, which is kind of ridiculous. Wow. It goes by really fast, I'll tell you. And that's how you and I met. We were on your previous show, and uh, I was talking about millennials. And the thing I, I just am blown away by with you is, yes, you are a millennial, but you are one of these movers and shakers who um, you just kick ass. It has nothing to do with you being a millennial. It's somebody I look at and I go, he's got the goods. And I knew that when you interviewed me. I said, uh, this is somebody who hustles, um, has a show, you teach classes, you're, you're working with some of the top brands in the country. And all I have to say is, do you ever just relax? <laughs> no, no, it's funny you should mention that. I was just thinking about this this morning. Um, I can't remember the context in which this came up, but I'm really bad at relaxing. Actually, it was yesterday, which was, I don't know if I'm allowed to put a date on this here, but it was a Sunday. And... I was up early and my wife goes, oh, why are you up so early? And I'm like, I have a lot of work to do today. And she's like, oh yeah, that's true. It's because I was doing a bunch of show prep and interview prep. And my friend goes, what are you doing today? And I'm like, oh, I got a bunch of work to do. And he's like, on a Sunday? And I just thought, yeah, but what else are you going to do on a Sunday if not catch up on work? And then my friend goes, what do you do when you take vacations? And I was just thinking, I don't know, not I mean, I look, I either walk around a city, but then I get back to work, you know, and it's not, it's not because I can't 
take a vacation. Part of it is because I cannot relax, but it's also more of a function of me not wanting to relax because bear in mind, like half my job is reading books and researching people. So thinking about what I'd be doing if I didn't have to do that, the other options don't necessarily appeal to me. Sitting on a beach, no thanks. Uh, going somewhere and eating a bunch of food, yeah, I'll do that. But then what, what are you going to do? You know, I dive into a book. And if I'm going to read a book, I might as well read a book that's going to be from somebody who's going to be on the show. It's just yeah. how I am. Right. Well, I think that is the, uh, the way most entrepreneurs, if they really break down and analyze their own behavior, we all know what our good behavior is and our bad behavior is. Mm -hmm. And we have to do that because your success is ultimately linked to your own, pardon me, bullshit. You know, yeah. you, you, you have to, if your business isn't doing well, look at yourself first and vice versa. You know, if I'm not doing well, my business usually suffers. So we know our bad habits and our good habits, and we have to work with those. Um, I, I just think it's a, extraordinary uh, with you. I, I have to ask you, you know, there was this great story you told, and I think this was a pivot, pivotal story that shifted your life, and that was when you were at the law firm and you are working these crazy hours, and this one guy comes in and comes in, says hi to everybody and leaves. And they go, well, that's the most successful guy here. And you learn from him. Could you mm -hmm. tell that story? I love that story. Sure. Yeah. This, this is kind of a funny story because it changed the way that I look at work forever. Right. It's, it's, it's been sort of a, I, I hate these dumb sort of like milestone where what's, what's the, what's the term I'm looking for here? Like, it's like a post hole. It's a watershed moment in my career. It changed right? the direction of his entire world. Exactly. Yeah. But it kind of did, and most of that's 2020 hindsight, just like a lot of these other sort of watershed moments. But Dave, he was the partner that hired me at my old law firm when I was a Wall Street attorney. And I was really surprised that he was a partner because he was never in the office. And I thought, oh, he must have some sort of special arrangement where he works from home. And I got to figure out how to do that because if I work from home, it'll take people longer to figure out that I don't belong here, you know, imposter syndrome, that I'm not smart enough to be here, whatever. And if they need more time to figure that out, it gives me more time to figure out how to be valuable to the firm and blend in so I don't get mm -hmm. fired. So I was trying to mitigate imposter syndrome by figuring out how to make myself scarce, essentially. And so I started to figure out what that might look like and come up with these different proposal ideas. And then I finally met up with Dave because he was supposed to be like my quote unquote mentor, right? right? So they basically forced him to take me out for coffee because they were like, you need to mentor this summer, okay? And he's like, ah, oh, fine. So he took me to Starbucks in the basement of the office building. Everybody else is going to see like Blue Man Group and going to like McCormick and Schmick with their mentors and spending all this time together. And I'm going to Starbucks for like the one day this summer. <laughs> and and yeah. he, it wasn't that he was, he, did, he wasn't like a jerk or anything. He was just busy and he's like, what do you want me to do? Like, I'm, what am I going to do? You see, you're doing work, you're fine. And I was like, how do you work from home? And he's like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, I assume you're working from home a bunch because you're never in the office. And he's like, well, I'm more valuable outside the office. And I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. What is, how could that be the case? Wow. And he goes, oh, well, I mean, I am working from home sometimes, but I'm also, I go do jujitsu and I go play golf and I go to charity events. And I was like, what is that? How can that be valuable to the firm? And he goes, well, I'm bringing in business. You know, I, I'm hanging out with people, investment bankers, people that are going to become clients, current clients. And I was like, why is hanging out with them valuable? And he goes, man, 
we get business from these people. So we want to make sure that we're on their radar. And I, I just like, he was basically trying to like beat this into me. And it was really hard for me to understand because as a first, second year associate, whatever I was, it was like, well, you work your way to the top. You become a partner because you work really, really, really hard. You never take any days off, whatever. And then you go to a country club and all the partners go, this is our newest partner. Here's his gold watch. Isn't he a great guy? And then you make all these friends with these other guys. And then I don't know how the business comes into the firm though. That's a whole mystery. I guess people look us up in the yellow pages. I had no idea. And he's like, no, 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 no. The way that this works is you're hanging out with people that you're top of mind. They trust you. They give you business. And I was like, well, how do you network? And he goes, well, you know, you got to be here and there and you got to do this and that and the other thing. And he didn't really have useful, actionable advice for me because he had gone to Brooklyn Law. He'd probably gone to some private school before that. He, you know, a lot of the bankers were guys he went to high school and college with. So he knew them and he just stayed friends with them. But there's a lot of wisdom in there because I'm like, well, wait a minute. If I can crack into that circle somehow, then in five years when they're like, who's bringing in business for the firm? Who's going to be our next senior associate or counsel or partner at five, 10 years? They're going to look at me and everyone else is going to be like, oh crap, how do I network? I don't want to be like, yes, I have a five, seven, 10 year head start on you. So I don't care if you're smarter than me and you sleep under your desk. I have a skill set you didn't even think about building that I started building in year one. And that's what got me off my duff and started thinking about networking and relationship development because it was spotlighted for me very early and other people didn't even believe me that that was important. They were like, no, keep your head down and work which is good advice, but not really. No, I'm th I love this story and I'll tell you why. It's this huge shift from your entry level, you're coming in at the bottom mm -hmm. and now you're being asked to think like an executive. You're being asked to think like the top salespeople in the world. And anybody who's listening, I don't care what profession you're in, there's a 1% rule. In every profession, there's that 1% that are at the very top, they're making all the money, and they have a secret and you better damn well go figure out what their secret is. Otherwise, you're going to be sitting at that desk in that cubicle for 10 years and you're going to be complaining. And you figured it out early. I think that that is wise. And you figured it out early because, well, basically there's this old saying that um, I forget who said it, but they, they said it's not the early person who gets up and does. It's the lazy person who wants to find the easiest way to get this thing done because they don't want to, they don't want to struggle. This idea of hard, hard toiling work, that doesn't mean you don't work hard. That's, that's, no. It's you're on a treadmill not going anywhere. That's what I hate. So you figured out at a very early stage in your career, it's about networking, it's about relationships. How did that translate into the rest of your life and what you're doing today? Well, what happened was I realized, okay, this is about these people skills uh, and networking. So what I got to do is learn these somehow. I don't really know how I'm going to do that, but it's worth figuring it out. So I took Dale Carnegie classes and I took learning how to network for beginners, whatever, at the Learning Annex or the YMCA or whatever. And I went to these classes and I, I remember sitting patiently in them and going, hmm, okay, so there's this guy in a sweater vest at the YMCA teaching me how to remember people's names. And that's all good. But then during the break, he was on a phone call with like his ex-wife or something and they were kind of arguing. And then he was calling someone else and saying his rent was going to be late. And I'm just like, is this a guy that I should be learning these skills from? I don't really know. So I, I would take those classes, but kind of be a little skeptical. And I would 
take what they taught me and apply it, but I thought there's more to it because if this was all I needed, then this guy who's teaching this class wouldn't have all these crazy life problems and probably wouldn't be working for like, you know, 200 right. bucks every Friday oh. at the YMCA, you know? And, and so I thought there's got to be more to the story. And then I started practicing a lot of what I learned in researching a lot online and asking other people what they knew. And it turned out that every executive or successful person, real estate investor, whatever it was, they would say, your network is so important. It's the most important thing. And I'd go, how do I improve it? And they'd go, well, you just got to, you know, put yourself out there and meet people. And I'd be like, how are you doing that? And they'd go, well, I do need to do a better job of that. But the one thing that I do is I play golf every Saturday. And they're like, but I do need to do a better job of that. And then really successful people that I met, they would say, yeah, it's really important. Uh, You do have to do that. And I'd say, how are you doing that? And they'd go, you know, let me think about that. Uh, By the way, I'm having a party on Saturday on my boat. Do you want to come? And I'd go, great. Yeah, I'd love to go on your boat. And then I'd show up and on the boat would be like the chief resident of surgery at (laughs) University of Michigan Hospital. And then like the administrator and then this person from the board of regents and all these landlords from Ann Arbor, Michigan and all these real estate investors. And I would be like, oh, you do this unconsciously, but you're doing it right now. And I'm now doing it because I'm on the boat right? I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the cool kids club. And they go, yeah, we're having a charity dinner on Thursday. Is everyone going to be there? And I go, uh, I would go, but it's, I can't afford 2000 bucks a plate. And they're like, no, 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 we got you. We got you. You're, you're our guest. You're our guest. And I'd show up and the person across from me would be the dean of admissions for the medical school. And, and I'm just like, what's going on here? There's something right. happening that's very deliberate, but I don't really understand it because I'm 24, you know? There's levels. Yeah, and, and you and were they, you were you were being exposed to the stratospheric level, and you're you're entry level, and you're you're going, oh my goodness, I'm I'm that guy probably makes eight hundred grand a year, and you just stand there going, what? Yeah, it was it was astounding because I'm sitting there with, I mean, the guy was probably literally in his fifties. You're right, he probably made eight hundred grand a year as the chief surgical whatever <laughs> chief of surgery. Uh, not chief resident, chief of surgery at University of Michigan Hospital. And we're sitting there chatting and I'm trying to figure out how to not make myself look like a total idiot at the table. And then afterwards they were like, did you get any good connections? And I was like, what do I do to get a connection? And they told me things like, oh, get their card. And then when you get home tomorrow or tonight, send them an email saying it was nice meeting you. Uh, Let me know how I can help with anything. And I'm like, but I can't help with anything. And they're like, it doesn't matter you know, they're not going to ask you for anything. And if they do, it'll be something that you can do for sure. And that really freaked me out because I thought, what if I asked the chief surgery, if he ever needs anything and he asked me for something and then I can't do it. And, and of course that never happened ever. You know, I mean, <laughs> the things that they were asking me yeah. were like, do you have any football tickets for the Ohio state game? You might have your, and I'm like, yeah, of course I can, I can totally get you football tickets for the student section. No problem. I thought you meant something important. So I started helping with things like that. And it was just so much easier than I thought. And I realized no one does this. And now that I'm pushing 40, no one does this. Even still, no one does this. And it's shocking yeah. to me. It, you know, I had, uh, and he's a friend of mine. You know, I met him through business networking and he came to me and he says, uh, all his clients were boomers and he is uh, a financial guy. You know, his, his series six and since seven license, you know, he can tell you how to invest. And he comes to me and he goes, I don't have any clients that are Gen X or millennials. And I'm going to, I'm freaking out because my boomer clients are going to retire. He goes, where's all the wealth at? You know? Um, yeah. I said, 
the rules have changed. I said, you've got to get your butt to UFC fights. You got to go to cigar clubs. I said, these young people aren't hanging out at the yacht club anymore. Here's what they're doing. So this is a strategy. For those of you listening in right now, I hope you're, you're taking notes because Jordan has just told you something extraordinary. Networking and not just wasted networking where you're walking the door and everybody's exchanging business cards and then you get home and you got a stack of 100 business cards a week, two weeks or a month later and you're going, I don't remember this guy. We're talking about very definite quantifying your leads and hanging out with the right people. And I think that's what's made your career uh, extraordinary. Uh, wouldn't you say? I mean, that, Yeah, I would say that's definitely part of it. I mean, it's not... Whenever people say, oh, it's all about who you know, they put some stank on the end of it, right? They're like, it's what you say when you lose an opportunity to somebody else and you're like, that brown noser. But it should be, <laughs> yeah. you know, it should be your unfair advantage that you're getting. And well, it's built, it's something you can build. It's not like you're not born into it. Even people that are born into it, they, they're, it's the tortoise and the hare. They don't have their foot on the gas. So four years later, you're ahead of them and you don't know what happened. Right. Well, I think this harkens to something that um, is your skill set and my skill set today, mm -hmm. and that is uh, you're not intimidated by guests who may be worth a billion dollars or are incredibly, you know, Kobe Bryant is sitting in front of you and you're not freaking out because you're used to this caliber. Mm -hmm. And I tell clients all the time because I, I train people to become thought leaders and things like this. I said, don't be intimidated by that. They're just like you. They started out just like you at some point. They were nervous as hell and they were 20. And they were trying to do it. Um, and, and I got to tell you, it, when you have to sit across somebody that you admire and you just, you, you want to go deep, you can't be sitting there thinking all these other nonsense thoughts. You just got to get in there. It's true. I, I don't know what the deal is. I think I'm too nervous about the logistics of getting the show recorded that I don't have time to be nervous. Like, Oh my gosh, it's Dennis Quaid. It's Kobe Bryant. You know, I don't have time for that because I just, I'm worried about other things. I'm not trying. I'm also, one of the things I learned early on is if the interview goes really, 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 really well, you're not going to be friends with the guest afterwards, probably anyways. Right. Some guests are exceptional. Like you and I became friends, but we had other mutual friends and we're like yeah. buddied up a little bit before that. But like, if I go and I interview Kobe Bryant, the odds of him ever remembering it pretty slim. And there's no interview scenario where afterwards the personality of that caliber goes, you know what? This person is so cool. I want to be their friend now. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. So I, I don't worry about it. And even if it did, I don't worry about it because it's kind of a silly goal. If your goal is to sit there and make friends, you're not thinking about your audience. You're thinking about how you're being yeah. perceived by other people. And it's not going to work as a show, as an interview, because no. it screws up the whole balance of everything that's going on. So I don't think about that at all. I don't think about, well, I hope Malcolm Gladwell emails me after this and invites me over to his birthday party. Like, I just don't worry about it. Right. And so not worrying about that opens up a whole new level of the type of question that I can ask, how deep I can go with them. And what that does is at the end of the interview, they go, wow, that was pretty good. I wasn't expecting that because I'm not sitting there just trying to make them look really good and, and fawning over them the whole time, which is uncomfortable. Yeah. 
Oh, it is. Uh, I had a guest on a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I've been following him for years, admired him. I got a chance to meet him in person. And 30 seconds in, I just said, let's talk about your alcoholism. Mm. And he was prepared for that. So I, I wasn't being a jerk, you know, but it was like, yeah, he goes, this is the cornerstone of everything I do. Um, I really want to get into your show, The Jordan Harbinger Show. I want mm. everybody to go watch this. I have been impressed from day one at the caliber of guests that you had on. But I got to tell you, there were a couple of interviews that surprised the hell out of me. And the reason I brought out Kobe Bryant is he talked about creativity and running yeah. a multimedia company. I was like, what? Yeah. And, and he said something that was powerful. He said, when we design a cover, we do something like this or this or that. And he goes, I want the image to be simple. That's the cornerstone of design. Uh, I was blown away by that. Uh, what else? I mean, you were that was a great interview, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, Kobe Bryant was interesting. And, and the challenge with guests that I have on the show is I'm always trying to get something different than what everybody else has when it's a popular guest. So with Kobe Bryant, it wasn't, oh, tell me. I mean, I watched a dozen, two dozen interviews with him before I did that just to make sure that I was getting something new and, and looking at what he had been doing recently. And there were a ton of people that had asked him, What's up with your rivalry with Shaq? What's up with the championship? And I was just thinking, yeah. like, isn't this like 10 years ago? I mean, does anyone care? And the answer is, yeah, guys who are watching ESPN2 at like 3 a.m., they kind of care. But it's not that interesting. Somebody who's yeah. a Kobe fan, they're going to be more interested in something new. And so we got him talking about Taylor Swift and how he thinks she's really great at what she does and how she's got this killer instinct. And creativity born of being on the edge of the basketball industry for so long is now helping him write children's books and design the cover of the book and create the story inside the book and all the little elements and angles and how him being detail oriented on the basketball court is helping him manage a team of detail oriented designers and people who, who loved Kobe thought this is going to be weird and boring because it's not about basketball, but they came away liking it. And then people who thought, uh, Kobe Bryant, I'm not a basketball fan. were like, wow, this A-list basketball superstar is sitting here talking about book design, creativity, Taylor Swift, like what happened in this interview. And that's kind of my MO on the show is doing that. Same with, I recently had Dennis Quaid on the show's coming out pretty soon. It's not up just yet as of this recording, but we started off by, I started off asking him how he learns all the different accents that he does. And then it got into like his childhood and how that, how he used to mess around with voices and now how he has kids and he messes around with voices. And, and that's like, he's like, I never talked about that, but I've never even thought about that actually. And that's how I learned acting and voices in general. So it's, it's a, it's an opportunity to ask people super interesting questions in my opinion that they also find interesting that and basically getting them to examine their own work in real time. And like most people don't get to do that. Who was your favorite guest on the show? Cause I, that, honestly, anybody who's listening, if you go watch and you just get this wall, if you click on the video part of Google search, this wall comes up of all the shows and the guest after guest after guest, even if you don't know the person, I mean, you, you've been with Seth Godin, you've had uh, Chelsea Handler on. I mean, um, who, who would you say was your, your favorite guest? You know, it's tough to pick one because it's like picking a favorite kid. Although I assume, I only have one kid, but I assume we all probably secretly have one. We just don't want to talk about it. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but one of my favorite shows recently is, is Howie Mandel because 
we spent a lot of time together and I was able to ask him a lot about his germaphobe OCD thing, but yeah. not drag it all the way down into like a mental health episode. I basically turned it into examining his work, what, how he got out of a career rut, um, why he's so generous. Cause man, we spent like the whole afternoon with him. He wanted to watch TV afterwards and show us <laughs> America's got talent. And his office was full of all these cool paraphernalia, memorabilia relics from old shows. And he gave us a whole tour of that. He's just a really, really generous guy. And I'm thinking you're one of the most famous people in America right now. You could just spend 20 minutes, 30 minutes with us and be like, bye. And he spent right. like four hours with us. That's incredible. Yeah. I bet it, you got it, a lot of great, great footage from it. We did. We got a lot of great footage from it. <clears throat> and I got a really good picture of why he's so beloved by his team and, and obviously mm. beloved by, by America. You know, like right. he's, even if you're not like, oh, he's so funny, you're still, you still know him and generally have a favorable opinion of him, I would imagine. You know, it's how he met yeah. him. Well, I first uh, watched him on a little <clears throat> show that was an emergency room show called Saint Elsewhere. Oh, yeah. And uh, believe it or not, Denzel Washington was also on that show. That's how he got his start. And I, you know, he had a standout role. He's a pretty damn good actor. And so then you find out he does stand-up comedy. And, it, he, you know, he's Canadian, so the comedy is a little bit, uh, it's clean, you know, it's fun. And then you... I, I think we have heroes in our life that are celebrities that we watch. Like when Christopher Reeve got injured, I couldn't watch anything he did because I felt I would cry because mm. we fall in love with that hero that we grew up with and we watched. And no matter what they go through, we're there for them. And I think Howie Mandel is one of those people because um, he's not a jerk, you know? And I think a lot of people, when he came out publicly about his... Um, his problem with touching and, and things like that. I think people, more people had compassion about it than judging it because it's Howie, mm -hmm. you know, it's Howie Mandel. Yeah. It's not like it. That's the thing. It's hard to hate somebody who's it, spent their whole life being, trying to make other people laugh. Ne doesn't have like a mean streak really doesn't have this sort of weird role where you're like, Oh, well serves him. Right. You know, you yeah. don't have that. If, if uh, Robert Downey Jr. had some sort of issue, I think a lot of people would be like, well, of course. You know, like when you look at his history and you're like, oh, he went to jail for drugs. You're like, well, that checks out. He's got that kind of attitude. <laughs> Not that you wish ill upon the guy or anything, no. but it just makes sense. But when you look at a guy like Howie, you, you go, oh, he's so nice. He's so nice. Oh, he has this touching thing. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it, yeah. I feel bad. That's got to be pretty rough on him. You know? no, and that's, it, yeah, go ahead. It's important to get a full picture of people like that because – it allows the it's, it allows you to see them more completely, but it also gives you a feel for what's going on inside. So a lot of his comedy was just like one big coping strategy for OCD <laughs> yeah. and mental illness, which turned into a career. So it's it's tempting to look at at any sort of adversity that we have in our own lives as as a problem and nothing else, some problem to be mitigated. But really, a lot of times our coping strategies are the things that make us incredible at what we do or are a core part of who we are. I mean, for me, I started off as a really shy kid. So now look, I speak on stage. I'm a broadcaster. You know, I interview people for a living. It's, this is in part, in large part, the result of a coping strategy that I developed 
which was, okay, I got to figure out how to network or I'm going to get fired. So start a show about psychology. Okay. Turns into an interview program because that's the best way to get the info. Turns into a totally different career than being a Wall Street attorney. You know, it's like, this is my job now, which is incredible. How do people get a hold of you if they need to get a hold of you? Sure. Uh, I'm at Jordan Harbinger on Twitter, Instagram. You can go to the Jordan Harbinger show and have a listen. And I'm very reachable through any of those avenues as well. And of course, Jordan at jordanharbinger.com is my email. I read everything. Excellent. Thank you. Now, I want to go into an interview that um, I really, I had a lot of compassion for. And you, you talked a little bit about your own stuff. And that was the one with Chelsea Handler. Mm. And you talked about Michael producing cannabis and CBD oils and things oh, like yeah. that. And I realized uh, when I first came out to Las Vegas, uh, I moved out here about two years ago. I couldn't sleep at night. I had back pain. Uh, I had anxiety. And it was for the first time in my life. You know, I'm in my 50s and I'm going, what the hell is going on? So that episode, when you guys talk about that, I want you to, to break it down a little bit for us. But you talked a little bit about your own anxiety. She talked about some of her own mental uh, health issues and getting better. And talking about how, uh, and we're not talking about getting high, you know, we're talking about medical use of this product. Um, and she opened up and said, I can sit here calmly for the first time because I, I'm able to do this. Uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. She was really open and I love that. I like that about any sort of high profile individual or anybody honestly, who's on the show, but I think for high profile individuals, the stakes are a little higher for them to admit something because typically they don't want to do that because they're not trying to make right. news. They're not trying to make waves. They're trying to promote their latest book or their new film. They're not sitting there trying to be like, yeah, I have OCD, you know, or yeah, I'm, I get depressed a lot. I mean, that's, that's not good for them, but they realize it's good for other people to hear. And I think that was the key for her. I mean, she's She's not just sitting around going, everybody should be high all the time. She's going, look, I have like crippling anxiety and cannabis is the only thing that helped and everything she was getting was loaded with impurities and really bad for you and stinky and you know, way too powerful or whatever it was. And so we started talking about that and I, I was like, you know, that's a good point. A lot of people don't look at this as medicine or they're told to go get Xanax or something so they get a prescription for some anti-anxiety medic medication when they could be doing something that's natural, safer, uh, potentially easier for them to control, a hell of a lot cheaper, you know, that kind of thing. And so that's what we started off talking about. Well, it, it, what impressed me the most is your honesty about your own stuff. And, and I look at my own life, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of these people, you know, I want to I write a book, I go write a book, you know, I'm, I'm always on hyperdrive. And I started to find myself uh, kind of wanting to take naps and, you know, I couldn't get to the, the point. I was sore all the time. That was the other thing. And I did some research and I found out about your cannabinoid networks and, the, you know, the way the body works. I didn't just do it. And I started taking CBD oil drops under the tongue at night before I went to bed and slept like a baby. And I thought, oh, this is, this is something that uh, a lot of people don't realize this, mm -hmm. but before uh, cannabis was made illegal... Uh, everything was made from hemp, including the you know F Ford Model T car. Uh, you know bodies were made out of fiberglass, made from hemp. Uh, ropes, canvas—that's where we get the word canvas from, cannabis. Um, oh. And so everything was cannabis-related. And if you look at a medical kit, 
from 1865, it contained cannabis and hemp products for tumors, for uh, you know, oils to you know, help with anxiety, all kinds of, of salves and different things that were all based on cannabis uh, and hemp. And what people don't realize is this was medicine 100, 100, you know, some odd years ago, 150 years ago. It's been removed. And now we act like it's a brand new thing. Oh, you know, it's coming. You know, it's happening. We're going to break this market. Well, we're just returning to the way we used to be. You know, hmm. That was the true cash crop in America. Jefferson and those guys, all our founding fathers, they were potheads. They were, they were basically growing the original cash crop. I mean, tobacco, yes, uh, but hemp. I mean, there's whole places in Long Island called Hemp Stead. Hello. That's where they used to grow the hemp. Um, That's interesting. I did not know that. I, I knew that people grew hemp, but I didn't know that it had to do... I didn't know that it was a big crop. I thought it was always something sort of... Yeah. Well, they, um, they, they did that on purpose. Every sailing ship, you know, before we had combustion engines and diesel and freighters and ships, we had clipper ships and, and you know, large sailing ships. Well, those, those big sheets of canvas, you know, sailing uh, sails were made from hemp because it was harder to rip. It, it was sturdy and it was strong. All the ropes, uh, the first freaking Levi jeans were hemp, you know, because they were growing uh, hemp to, to weave, to create clothing, most of our clothing. Our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence and um, the Bill of Rights and the, the uh, you know, the amendments, those are all on hemp paper you know hemp was a big paper but you know um hearst uh the publishing magnet mm -hmm. randolph hearst uh he was the one who pushed to get cannabis and, and hemp banned and then he cornered the paper market with wood pulp <laughs> and he became a billionaire what would be considered a billionaire back then from getting congress to ban hemp cannabis and not telling them that that's what they were banning. They called it the Mexican name, Spanish uh, name, which was marijuana. Mm. So Congress didn't know what the hell marijuana was. They destroyed an entire industry with the stroke of a pen. And uh, we're talking, if you go back and look at your history, the first Model Ts, they were messing around with fiberglass. And they uh, Henry Ford was developing... Uh, fiberglass that was nine times stronger than steel. You know, you got hit by a Model T. It, it didn't bend. It didn't give in. It, it was flexible. And it was because the fibers in hemp uh, are so uh, strong and strung out and long like this. So they were creating fiberglass from hemp at that time. Uh, they were also developing uh, <clears throat> ways to um, drive cars on hemp oil or hemp, you know, uh, types of gas, you know, wow. gasoline made from hemp. So they were really uh, experimenting with hemp as this amazing product. And it, all of a sudden they discovered oil in Pennsylvania and that was it. Oh, we can use this to, for the combustion engine because most cars were also electric back in, you know, a hundred years. Uh, almost all cars were electric. I did so not I, know that. That's incredible. It's, I sound like an old man on this show. Uh, but imagine, imagine the different world we would have if we weren't, dependent on oil that's a whole geopolitical well, thing but dang i get into arguments with people because they're always like you know they bitch about certain things and i just go uh, hold on hold on oil in case you haven't been taught is the number one business in the world in the world okay mm -hmm. everything trickles down from oil 
all plastic, lubricants, uh, you know, even clothing, uh, high impact stuff, everything in your car, it, it, plastic, oil, petroleum products are used for, for skin lotion. They're used for, I mean, even your computer has oil petroleum based products in it, including the plastic casing. So if we're going to, you know, eliminate oil, guess what? We're going to be eliminating a lot of products that we rely on right here, right now. And I'm from the generation, Jordan, that I remember when everything was in glass bottles. The Coca-Cola came in a glass oh, bottle. Oh, yeah. Um, if I wanted to get, you know, lotion for my skin, it came in a glass bottle. And then I remember that it, it was like night and day. Suddenly, everything's plastic. And we turned our nose up at it. Even cars were becoming plastic. Like I remember my buddy, his stepfather bought a fiat in 1979 1980 and we got in and we started laughing because the handles were made of plastic you know we were used to american cars made of steel mm -hmm. and so things really shifted from like 1977 into the 80s and then everything's made of plastic now well plastic comes from oil you think they're gonna stop making plastic <laughs> you know we can barely get an electric car if it wasn't for elon musk pushing and pushing and pushing uh, I doubt if we'd have uh, electric uh, cars uh, at this point. Um, yeah, that, I think you're probably right. And I think it, it is interesting to see how much resistance he's got. I mean, I'm from Michigan. It, there are, are or at least were no Tesla dealerships in Michigan because it was illegal oh, to sell. Did, yeah, they did that in New Jersey. Uh, you couldn't uh, plug your car in on the highway. They banned the the Tesla uh, stations. You know, you had a plug-in point every 300 miles, let's say. Um, they banned those. They banned the dealerships. That's that's horrible. <laughs> it's, it's completely ludicrous to do that. It's just, you're, let's make our infrastructure less useful because these companies want to be able to sell things. There's no good reason for banning electric charging stations. I mean, New Jersey does that too the, the, with gasoline, right? You can't pump yeah, your own gas there because pump, they want yeah. someone to have a job there. Well, they said, uh, they, they claimed that somebody, too many people were pumping their gas and then it burst into flames and blew up. Yeah, right. Well, and they showed us this propaganda film. And I said, eh, I've never heard of that happening. You know, we have too no. many safety switches and valves. So I always say this to people and they don't want to hear it. We live in a plutocracy that's run by an oligarchy mm -hmm. that's disguised as a free market. Yeah. And whenever we want to make some headway with something, there's a corporation up there going, hey, hey, no, you got to stop these people from having their freedom. And I think we would be further along. I think we'd be living on the moon, man, if we didn't have all these controls. And, you know, I mean, why are we still getting oil pumped into our houses in order to heat our homes, shouldn't we have something more modern? I mean, for sure. Is, I mean, I, I always tear my hair out about that. Well, everything should, in theory, be able to be done with electricity and very efficiently. And people go, oh, well, you're just outsourcing your emissions to another place. And it's like, well, yes, that is true. But also there are economies of scale. If you have to generate the power inside the car and that thing has to also be mobile and then carry the fuel with it to combust, that's much less efficient than having a three mile wide giant, you know, power plant area that is able to recover a lot of the heat loss, uh, keep tons of fuel on board, ship it in via boats, which is efficient, things like that. 
or a nuclear facility that you can't have in a car, but you yeah. can have 600 miles away from civilization or whatever in the middle of some place that has a whole infrastructure around it. And then, yeah, it gets, uh, gets sent to my house and wires and it heats my house and it runs my internet and it runs my car. I mean, this is so obvious now to the younger generation, but we don't have entrenched interests like these companies that don't want to have to refigure everything and rejigger everything in order to keep making money. And I think going back to your original point about millennials, like we slash they are getting pretty sick of that stuff and because oh, yeah. we're the ones who have to pay the bill. Yeah. And you know, uh, boomers have gotten blamed for a lot of things and uh, I like to clear this up. There's a lot of things and you guys are starting to realize that we have no yeah. control over. We couldn't stop it if we tried. Yeah. Uh, and we're being blamed for it. It's like, look, there are these guys at the top. <laughs> they don't, they're trying to control and keep their markets. And we're talking billion and trillion dollar markets. They're not going to listen. You know, you come along with some. How many times have you heard of something that was innovative and they pump money into it and then it goes into R&D and then it disappears? Mm -hmm. you know, it just goes yeah. away. Um, it, it happens all the time. I mean, it, it, and you see it even at the smallest of scale with things like certain apps where you go, wow, this is really good. And then LinkedIn will buy it. And you'll be like, oh, great. They're going incub to incubate it and bring it right into the system. And then it's like, I'll email the CEO three months later. And I'm like, hey, the app stopped working. He's like, well, we sold to LinkedIn. I'm like, well, okay, but when are they going to activate it? And he's like, I think they just killed it. It's yeah. like, wait, what? They bought you guys? And then they killed it, and they're, and they're like, "Yeah, we got we were in the company unassigned for X number of months, and now they basically said you don't have to show up anymore, and we just took a payout. We didn't know that was going to happen." And I'm like, "They just killed you guys because you were going to compete with them." And they're like, "Yeah, we yeah. didn't really realize that. They thought they were getting jobs. They were going to bring this new tech into the company." I'm not just blaming LinkedIn. I mean, this happens all the time, all oh, over the place. Yeah. Well, there's a great documentary called "Who Killed the Electric Car." Mm. Uh, and it basically, we, we've had cars that run on water. We've had cars, you know, Jay Leno has a show where he takes out one of his electric cars that's from the late 1800s. Oh, wow. When we went to the moon, we used fuel cells from the 1800s. So they ain't giving you the latest thing. Tesla laid down about 90 to 100 patents that makes this cell phone possible. Uh, and he did that like 1912. So we, we think we're so advanced. I mean, we, yeah, we are. You know, I'm not blowing smoke here, but we could be more advanced. You know, we really could. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's funny because a lot of people are thinking, Elon Musk? No, Nikola Tesla. So the, the original Tesla, not the car company. Yeah. It, it is interesting to see the innovation, but it's not uncommon for old ideas to come back into fashion yeah. and then become advancements again. Uh, it's just good that we're now seeing this front and center because now we can go, well, wait a minute. What, why didn't this happen before? And when you see that the usual suspects are things like oil companies and politicians, it starts to become a recurring pattern and you start to go, well, wait a minute. If these are the biggest inefficiencies and I'm about efficiency as a millennial, as a tech-focused person, yep. then if we're getting rid of inefficiencies, then what we should be getting rid of are these oligarchies, not, not looking at all these sort of like nickel and dimey little things and optimizing this and that and the other thing. The biggest thing standing in the way are these entrenched interests. And, and that's where we, that's where I think people are going to get a wake up call in the next few decades is when a lot of these millennials uh, grow older and Jen, is it I, Jen gets old enough to vote? Yeah. And they're like, what yeah. the hell have you guys been doing? And we're like, finally, now we're the majority and we can say we're not really loving the whole fact that we have to kill everything so that and make yeah. everything out of plastic, even though we're using it for five seconds. Not you know, uh, 
this is what we do on Awakened Nation. We get deep, yeah. and, and yeah. we're going to have to duck because they, they, they're coming at us, the men in black. You, need, you can't talk about that. Um, you, from your lips to God's ears, brother, I think boomers raise millennials uh, to do this, to do this work, because uh, I, I talk to every millennial, and it's sort of like mom and dad came into their face and just said, don't do what mommy and daddy did. We screwed this yeah. up. We hate working for a company. Follow your passion. You know, do what you got to do. Um, but yeah, great conversation on this. Um, who would be your dream guest on the Jordan Harbinger show? Dream guest on the Jordan Harbinger show? Hard to say. I do have a great wish list full of people. I think that Will Smith would be an interesting one. Because oh, yeah. he works so hard and yeah. he's worked really hard since he was like 14 years old or something like that. He's still relevant, still an A-list celebrity, yeah. raising new celebrities <laughs> and he's in his 50s and it's incredible to see somebody like that. Yeah. I mean, he's just in a completely different universe. Yeah. yeah, he has this weird habit. When he memorizes a script, he memorizes both lines. And he, when he was on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, they had to cut a few times because he would be mouthing the other actor's words before he would respond. It was like really? a subconscious thing. Watch the early episodes. He'd be, he'd be mouthing their words sitting right next to them while they're saying it because he would get both lines down. That's how his brain works. Wow, that's, that's incredible. An, yeah, that's an extraordinary person who can do that. Um, Certainly is. And most, a lot of actors don't even memorize their lines, let alone everybody's lines. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's one a guy in Hollywood. Uh, what's his name? He was the guy who played uh, Jesus in The Passion of the Christ. You, you know who I mean? Blue eyes, real tall, good looking. No, dude. he was on. Um, he he was on Person of Interest. I'll remember his name after we get off the air. Okay, <laughs> but he's well known for never rehearsing, never reading a script. He has to wear a headpiece, and they tell him what to say. And, oh and, wow, he like can't memorize anything. Yeah. He, or he just refuses. He's, he's lazy because he became an actor because he's so damn good looking. Everybody goes, we got to get that guy in the show. Oh, geez. He's, that's, tre he's tremendous. Yeah, that's lazy. And that pisses off your other acting partners, I, I have to tell you. But yeah, that's, that's beyond lazy. That's just like that yeah. you're, just in, in, you're inconveniencing everyone else. Is it Jim Caviezel? Yes, Jim Caviezel. Yeah, he's, he's well known in the industry for not... Uh, and, and luckily, he's on a show where he has to wear a headpiece. So it looks natural. Like he's going, what did you say? You know, and Mr. Ace, you know, like that show. I love that show. That's so, so, what a weird thing to do. I, I would feel embarrassed doing that. Oh, there's a couple of actors in Hollywood. And I, I have friends who work in the, in the industry. That's why I know some of this. But, um, yeah, you got to bring your A game. I mean, uh, just having you on the show today, uh, I did my research because I didn't want to be an asshole. Mm. You know, I wanted to respect your time. Um, so I, I did a deep dive into what you were doing. And, and by the way, it's awesome. I mean, it, it, I feel like you are the kind of person who consistently ups your game. Is that true? Yeah, I'm always looking to do that. A lot of people, somebody who's a producer, production partner of a very well-known newscaster, he called me about a project and I, I was really flattered and I said, hey, do you think you could get this really well-known news broadcaster interviewer to critique some of my work? You know, I'll pay him for his time. I'd love to work with him. I'll fly out to New York and do it. And, and he goes, why would you do that? I said, well, 
I want to learn from him and these other people and this other person and this other person that all the like kind of at the top of their game. I was listing like, you know, Terry Gross and all these folks. And he said, you don't need to do that. Uh, you're already doing really well. And I was like, yeah. what do you, what is that? That's like saying, I'm not going to go to the gym anymore because I'm in good shape. It doesn't make any sense right. to me. And he's like, no, you really don't need to do that. You know, you could, you could just keep going with what you're doing. And I'm like, I'm 39. I'm not going to stop growing in the craft of interviewing and creating the show now that I'm, I'm 39. I'm not 69. Like, what, <laughs> what's going on? Like, and, and believe it or not, 69 isn't, isn't the end either. Yeah, I'm not 79 years old. How's that? Um, you know, ready to retire. I've, I've got like 40 years before I start mailing it in. You know, I want to start learning now. I have the resources to pay the right people and take, you know, I, I'm at a place where I can really benefit from this because I'm not new to the game. Like, what do you mean? And uh, he was just shocked. And I said, I'm, I'm on a mission. He's like, I can't believe it. I've never heard anybody, you know, say that, that they that's want to keep you, doing that. That's you, brother. That's, that's why I've always admired you. But well, you're going to be 80 and you're going to, I'm Jordan Harbinger. I used to be a big deal. Back I used to be a big deal around here. Yeah. <laughs> now, not so much. Hey, uh, we're going to go into the lightning round here. I like to ask uh, some questions so that people kind of get to know you uh, at a deeper level that, than maybe they, they get a chance to when you're on the air. Um, so the first question, you ready? Yep. All right. What would people be surprised to know about you? I, who, surprised to know about me? Let's yep. see. My favorite activity is reading and i guess i don't really look like the type um oh you know what no i've been to north korea four times that's pretty surprising i don't think most people know that you're kidding no that's that's incredible i i yeah. my, one of my books is in it was been translated in korean you might be able to smuggle it in that's incredible what was it like i mean what was that like over there well the i <laughs> It's kind of hard to explain because it's so different than everything else in the world. It's kind of like going to a fake country in that every place you go to is closed until you get there because there's no business, there's no commerce, there's no people just like walking around shopping, things like that. That doesn't really exist. Uh, people are either working like crazy or they have nothing to do and they don't have any spare income because it's, it's socialist, right? It's, it's a communist country. Right. Um, it's also profoundly unfree. You can really sense the fear on the faces of people walking around. There, there's a whole segment of society that will pretend they don't see you as a tourist. They just will pretend that they absolutely cannot see you when you're outside. You know, you'll walk past and, and if a kid who's too young to kind of understand this looks at you, the mother will be like, no, no, you know, don't, don't be, don't look at them. Don't do Don't interact with them in wow. any way. And you can tell that they're kind of scared of you. Um, but you wonder, are they scared of us because of all the propaganda they've heard from people? Or are they scared of the government realizing that they're interacting with you? And then that brings undue attention to them. And then they get investigated for being too yeah. friendly to foreigners. It's like a whole thing. And you hear that that's the case when you hear from people who have escaped, that it's just not worth it. It's not worth talking to a foreigner because it's just going to open you up to inquiry and, and that kind of thing. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. That is, that is, wow. That's mind-blowing. And, and there's a lot of things like that, right? Like, it's epitomized. That there's so many examples of this kind of thing showing up. But one thing that happened that was really super interesting and unusual, and, and this is, again, one of like a billion different little 
kinds of events that happen there that illustrate just that you're, you're not in Kansas anymore. We were at the hotel, which by the way, is on an island in the middle of a river. Uh, and it's the only hotel that foreigners, one of the only hotels that foreigners are allowed to stay at. Mm-hmm. You show up there, you're not allowed to leave the hotel grounds uh, at, without your tour group and certainly not at night at any time. And nobody's allowed to come in and visit you or anything like that either. Wow. So we're up there and we're at the restaurant on the top floor. And I was like, oh, let me get another drink. And they're like, okay, great. So they bring me another beer. A couple of friends of mine uh, who are on the trip with me come by to hang out, whatever it is. And what we notice is that all of the lights in the entire city, entire capital city, they all go out at 9 p.m. And I'm talking about people's homes, not like street lights, everything. And wow. literally everything. And the only lights that were on are the one in the train station and all of the lights that are on all of the statues of the leaders and all of the propaganda posters, those stay on. And then wow. at midnight or 10 p.m. or whatever hour it was after that, a lot of the navigation lights go out too. Um, all the street lights had already gone out, but I mean like the train station lights went out, things like that, because there was just nothing happening. And all of the leaders' statue lights, those, stowed, those stayed on all night long. All night long. What, what, like imagine this. Imagine you're at home. You're lighting your house with a candle because your kid is sick or something like that. Uh, and the only place that has electricity is a statue of a guy who's been dead for 20 years and a propaganda slogan that says, like, forward to the future. And, and you can't use any power. I mean, it's just like wow. at some point you must be like, the hell is this? TV has one channel or two channels. I can't remember. And all of it is just old, like 60s, 70s propaganda movies. There's no foreign programming. Wow. It's very, very weird. And by the way, if you try to modify your TV to get foreign stations or your radio or anything, you go to prison. I mean, there's like, wow. yeah, it's, it's crazy. They, they pass around DVDs. There used to be a thing when DVDs were a thing. They would go around and turn off the power randomly and then they would do apartment walkthroughs and look at your DVD player. And if you had a foreign movie stuck in there when the electricity went out, you got in trouble. So now they use flash drives for movies and things like that. And I was like, oh, they're using flash drives. How interesting. And people said it's safer. Not, not it's more convenient, not it's quicker, not <laughs> wow. it's, e- it's safer because they're easier to smuggle, but also because you can rip them out and hide them and they don't get stuck in the machine. And I was just like, concerns we don't have over here. Oh, even getting no. stuck in the machine and going to prison. I mean, because Korean movies and American movies are illegal. Wow. Yeah, unbelievable. The most popular show is Our Fearless Leader. <laughs> That's horrible. Um, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, second, qu- second question. What makes you angry? Incompetence makes me angry. I was angry this morning because some in super clear instructions that I'd given um, were not followed. And I know that that's super petty. Like, you're probably asking a bigger question. I'm giving you like a personal flaw. I'm not sure that was the point of the question. But that stuff makes me livid and furious. And it's because I'm really hard on myself. So, of course, like, I'm, it's, it's kind of like this. I understand in some ways when I see like Hollywood actors go bull, just explode because they've worked really, really hard. They've memorized all their lines. They're doing all this stuff. And then some like lighting guys texting and screw something up. 
Right. And sometimes they explode at somebody and it's not probably okay. But other times I'm like, I get it. I get it. They've totally. spent so much time preparing <laughs> for this. And then someone's like joking around and they're like, I'm trying to be the freaking joker here. Stop showing someone candy crush moves. You morons. <laughs> You know, like get in the game. And I get that from a, from my standpoint. Like if I spend 20 hours preparing for an interview and someone's like, forgot the memory cards. I'm like, you're absolutely, you're so fired. I don't even want to hear your excuse. Yeah. I get that, man. I totally get that. Last question. What's your favorite memory? My favorite memory? Oh man. I feel like I have a bunch of these, but let me think of a good one here. Hmm. There's so many good. There's so many good ones from when I was little too. You know, that's um, fine. Because there might be that one that changed the course of your 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 life. You know, like uh, I was shy as a kid, like you, and my father broke me of that because he wouldn't let me come in until I said hello to the new neighbor kid. And there was a thunderstorm coming, so if mm. I didn't freaking do it, I was going to get electrocuted or arena. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. So any any memory I think is fun. You know. One time, this is not the best one, but it's a good one. When I was young, I went camping with the Boy Scouts and I got sick and I felt it in the middle of the night. And I was like, oh, my stomach's really upset. My stomach's really upset. Not sure what's going on. Who knows? Probably like drank some lake water on a canoe trip or something. And I was with my dad and my dad was always kind of hard on me. And I was like, dad, I don't feel good. And he's like, what's, what's wrong? Because he was kind of, he always kind of like grumpy and annoyed. And I was like, my stomach hurts. And he's like, whatever, tough it out. And then I woke up in, at like 2 or 3 a.m. And I had like chat myself, you know, I, I just oh, couldn't wow. help it. And I was like, dad. And he's like, oh, I know. He like knew, you know, he could smell it or whatever. And he goes, did you poop in your pants? And I was like, yeah, I'm sick. And he was just like, I just knew he was going to yell at me. And he goes, okay, okay, go clean up. Do you need help? And I was like, no. And so I went and showered off or whatever and like, cleaned up or whatever it was and i was like don't yell at me and he's like i'm not i'm not and he got my pants my dirty poo pants he took them and he brought him to his car we're in the middle of nowhere he gets in the car drives around like all night looking for a 24-hour laundromat which does not exist anywhere right and he probably just waited in his car until something opened up in whatever nearby town there was that he had found on the map this is before gps and he just waited and then he came back with clean pants and I was just like, wow. And the reason that that was important is because he was always so hard on me, but I didn't realize probably until then that he was always doing that out of love. It just seemed like he was a grumpy guy. Yeah. But the fact that he took my poopy pants when I was probably like eight or 10 or however old I was, 11, and, and drove around all night must have been miserable and then came back with my pants because I don't know why I only had one pair of pants. I think it was like a weekend canoe trip, you know? Yeah. And he didn't want me to be embarrassed. So he came back with clean pants and then didn't say anything. And he didn't make me feel bad or anything. Wow. I think yeah. you, and I, you and I were separated at birth because my dad could be the same way. And then yeah. you'd have this extraordinary thing happen and you're like, he's going to scream. He's going to do yeah. it. And then he goes, you okay? You all right? Yeah. And, and it was like there was a line that had to be crossed. Totally. Like it wasn't your fault when it happened. And they knew that. Now, if it was your fault, oh man, you got your ass whooped. But when there were these circumstances where it was like, oh, okay, you've crossed that line. 
then they have all this compassion. You're like, who the hell is this guy? Yeah. <laughs> It, it it is funny, man. I'm telling you because you think, yeah, you're right. When it's that severe, your dad's like, "Oh, okay, this is some real stuff." But when it's yeah. just like, "Oh, sorry, I was late again. I wasn't looking at the clock." It's like, get it, get it together. Yeah, you know, come on. Yeah, it was uh, done out of love. So once again, for our guests, Jordan Harbinger. How do we get a hold of you, real quick? Your sites. Where do we go? jordanharbinger.com uh, at jordan harbinger on twitter and instagram and the jordan harbinger show is the podcast and it's uh, got plenty of great interviews and fewer poop stories than this show does <laughs> excellent uh what can we look forward to you got a couple of guests coming up that it's going live uh yeah yeah we've got dennis quaid coming up which i thought was really interesting uh i've also got admiral stavridis coming up as well who was is just a really really sharp guy and Quite a few, well, a guy who teaches people how to beat the polygraph test. I've got a, a, a Soviet spy who defected to the United States and a bunch of other, honestly, quite fascinating people coming down the pipeline. Wow. Uh, you had Dennis Rodman on? Uh, I did. Coming. What was he like? He was very, very uh, standoffish at first, opened up right away, and was just generally kind of a friendly and open guy. I really enjoyed that interview. He was a pretty open guy. There were there's a line, of course, to that, but he was he was a fun interview for sure as well. Excellent, Jordan Harbinger. Thank you for being. Thank on you very Awake. much. Thank you for being on Awakened Nation, brother. Uh, tune in next week, my friends. Take care. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for being a big part of the Awakened Nation movement. This is how you can help me and our extraordinary guests. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please share it out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let's grow this movement by word of mouth. Our success will be because of you. Thank you, and see you next week.